too many um what's the right word professionals here because the entire thing is just spongebob memes like <laughs> almost entirely spongebob memes well i think that's actually very professional in this context for software exploitation yeah i agree um but yeah i actually uh, got into trouble a couple of times back when i was a pen tester uh where i didn't realize i was in a production environment and would plant a flag uh, and on a number of occasions, planted a SpongeBob meme that ended up being seen by a couple thousand people. <laughs> uh, so hopefully I don't make that mistake again. But hello, everyone. So I am Kai, and today we're going to be talking about covert C2 channels. Uh, so I really intended this talk for people that uh, might not be as familiar with this sort of terminology. So there's going to be a lot of groundwork to cover. But I am a security researcher. I climb rocks. I'm really fun at parties. And I teach at BU. So we're going to be showing a lot of SpongeBob memes. We're going to be talking about what exactly a communication channel is. We're going to do a speed run of a semester of crypto. We're going to introduce some topics that deal with you know, the ecosystem at large around typically red teaming. Uh, and then we'll talk about how to make them better. So first things first, if we're going to talk about a communication channel, we need to know what that is. So a communication channel in this context is anything that can be used to send and receive data. So this is a great one. You can send messages over bubbles, and that is a perfectly valid communication channel. We are going to be focusing mostly on, you know, network protocols. So typically speaking, think about data going across the wire. Uh, and not necessarily like a single wire, like we might have it like multiplex. We might have a lot of people in a crowded room. Like this is a pretty general framework. So some examples of sending messages over a network that we have today are you have TCP, UDP, ICMP. Uh, bonus points to anyone who knows what IPOAC is. Uh, we have some higher level ones like HTTP and its derivatives. We have DNS, SSH. That's supposed to say RDP, not RTP, my bad. Um, and a few others. But does anyone know what IPOAC is? I would have expected to see quick. Uh, I have no idea what IPOAC is. So quick is actually HTTP3. Um, but so, or that's officially what it is, but yes, that is quick. IP over AC is IP over avian carrier, uh, where it turns out that sending and receiving data with carrier pigeons and like terabyte SD cards is still one of the fastest ways to send large amounts of data. Uh, and someone actually went through and implemented this. And this is a perfectly valid communication channel. There's like an RFC about that, right? Yeah, there is. It was okay. Of them, actually, I think IPOAC isn't the original RFC. I think it's um, I think it might be IP over carrier pigeon, but okay. uh, there okay. is like, a specific RFC for that. So, in the context of cyber operations, we're going to talk about a couple of things. So, implant here is a catch-all term for malware that you implant on a machine. This can be a backdoor. This can be a crypto miner. This can be anything that is doing something that the person who is running it. Uh, is either unaware of or doesn't want it to be doing. The operator is the entity that actually controls this implant. So we're not going to be talking about fully autonomous implants. We are going to be talking about implants that need to get commands from somewhere. The command and the control server is where they get that from. And this is a pretty general thing where you might be thinking, oh, it's just like an HTTP server. But because of the way that uh, you know the offensive security space has sort of evolved recently, this can be a pretty general thing. This could be a phone. This can be something that is just running a Bluetooth server. You can do all sorts of crazy things with this. And a C2 channel is effectively the communication channel that is leveraged to go through and control the implant. 
So just to keep this concrete, let's talk about an idealized version of networking. So for those of you who have taken a crypto class, the obligatory Alice and Bob, but here we have a situation where we have two or more entities, for now we'll stick it as two, who are communicating over a communication channel. They are able to go through and synchronously send messages in a reliable manner. And here everything is great. Alice sends a message to Bob, Bob receives the message and responds, and time goes on, no one has a care in the world. So we're going to talk a little bit about the security implications of um, you know, communication channels specifically. What happens when you don't necessarily own the network or what happens when the communication channel might not be secure? And whenever you talk about security nowadays, you need to specify, well, what exactly you're secure from. And that's typically because the space in cryptography has evolved over time to be an offshoot of complexity theory, where it sort of started off as you know, this catch-all term for just trying to confuse people with maybe ciphers or obfuscation protocols that might not be publicly known, but it has really evolved into like a very rigorous field. <laughs> so we're going to introduce a couple of kinds of adversaries and talk about ways in which that we can be secure from that adversary. So in other words, when we talk about security, we mean if we are dealing with a particular class of adversary and we don't want them to get some amount of information, then our protocol is secure if and only if they are unable to get that information. So we're going to talk about three main ones. So for those of you that have taken crypto, you might recognize Eve and Mallory. And then Fabian is one that is sometimes shows up, but I've also added my own spin to it. So Eve is a passive adversary. Eve is a wiretapper. Eve is able to passively listen between communications sent between Alice and Bob. Or more generally, just snoop on traffic in general. Mallory is a more active adversary who is able to actually go through and intercept, modify, or destroy messages. And Fabian is even more powerful, and we'll talk about him in a little bit. But first things first, this one should be pretty straightforward, where if Alice and Bob are communicating, Eve can go through and eavesdrop. In the context of cyber operations, if I have malware that is communicating with my C2 server, even if I can't modify that traffic, I can kick off an incident response, or I can ask my engineers to go through and figure out what the heck is going on if all of a sudden I see commands flying across the wire. And more generally, we want to make sure that if someone is listening in on the wire, that if there's information that we mark as secret or we would not like them to know, they shouldn't be able to see it. So when we talk about secure against Eve, specifically what we're saying is, well, there are actually a lot of ways to formalize this. And for those of you that have taken crypto, one of the weaker versions of this is called chosen plain text security. But effectively speaking, if I allow Eve to go through and take a look at the encryption of multiple messages, they should not be able to distinguish a challenge message from a random stream of data. And here when I talk about random noise or IID uniform data or random, this is just coin flips. If I show it a binary sequence of data of size n, then if my message is actually securely locked down, typically called encrypted, then you should not be able to figure out whether or not it is encrypted using my algorithm or I randomly flipped some coins. And the way that you usually do this is you imagine a monkey with a blindfold. And on the one hand, you have data that I actually encrypted with an algorithm. And on the other hand, I have randomly generated noise. I spin the monkey around and with probability one half with hopefully no significant advantage, it shouldn't be able to tell the two apart. 
So again, this is something that typically gets covered in like a week's time. So we're really gonna like blow through a semester of crypto here. Um, and for those of you that are cryptographers, I am going through and taking shortcuts here. Specifically, what do I mean when I say, oh, like they shouldn't reliably be able to do that because we're dealing with adversaries that are bounded in some capacity. So uh, if we have time, I'll talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, and specifically, Eve has some glaring limitations. Let's continue this conversation in private, Patrick. I think some people are eavesdropping. Oh, how rude of some people. So, namely, if you can detect that I'm doing something suspicious on your network but don't have the capacity to stop me, that might not matter. So in the context of something like ransomware or a smash and grab operation where it doesn't really matter if you're eventually able to decrypt my messages, so long as I'm able to go through and execute on whatever my objective is, my operation has a deadline. And so long as I'm able to execute by that deadline, it doesn't matter. So the notions of like secure against what get a little bit murky when you're dealing with these sort of like, well, I only need it to be secure for this amount of time or I only need to be able to communicate on your network for this amount of time, the definitions get a little bit murkier. And as a result, you can start to rely on security through obscurity because it might take people a while to reverse engineer what your malware is doing. But today we're gonna to focus on channels and specifically what happens when we go through and actually start locking these things down and deal with an adversarial network owner. Let's continue this. <laughs> so we're going to introduce the second kind of adversary. So this one is called Mallory. So Mallory is also a man in the middle and is capable of snooping on traffic. But here they're able to go through and modify messages in transit, drop messages in transit. Um, they're a much more powerful adversary here. So you can think of it as like a man in the middle proxy. So this is more interesting because in the event that you're able to go through and identify traffic as malicious, you can just drop it, right? As a simplifying assumption for when I talk about Fabian, we'll also assume that Mallory cannot keep a communication channel closed indefinitely. So they eventually need to open it back up. They can't close it down permanently. So here the problem is, if Mallory can go through and modify messages in transit, even if they're hidden, it doesn't matter. They can still cause problems. So take the example of sending a single bit across the wire. So let's pretend that I'm running a uh, stock exchange, right? And a one corresponds to a buy and a zero corresponds to a sell. I might be able to encrypt the message to the point where you can't really do better than one half at guessing whether or not it's a buy or a sell, but Mallory can still flip that bit in transit. And without knowing whether or not it was a buy or a sell, they have changed what it was doing. So this is obviously a problem in a lot of situations and specifically around, let's say you have a cyber operation where you're trying to go through and do host enumeration. Well, if I can't trust the response from my implant wasn't modified in some way, that's a major problem, right? So let's say I do something basic and run, who am I? And I wanna figure out what privileges I have. And they're able to go through and intercept this traffic and see that name flying across the wire or they're able to modify that message, that's a problem. They might not be able to prevent me from communicating, but they can make sure that whatever I receive is garbage. Or more subtly, they can go through and modify things in transit and corrupt the results. So we wanna make sure that they can't actually modify our messages in transit. So here's an example of Mallory in action. Patrick, you're my best friend in the whole neighborhood. Hello, 
You are the dumbest idiot it has ever been my misfortune to know. Okay, you get the idea. So they can go through and inject their own messages. So if you're already using encryption, this is a little bit less powerful, but in the event where you're not using encryption, this is extremely powerful. Like you can do a lot with this. So let's talk about one model that exists for securing yourself from a Mallory type figure. So this is called existential forgeability, but basically you wanna have a system in place where it is very difficult to go through uh, and detect, or rather it should be very difficult to go through and forge messages. It should be very easy to detect when messages have been tampered with. And finally, it should be easy to detect when messages are dropped. So again, security as it's sort of defined right now is put in terms of games. So the game here is I give Mallory access to some number of messages and their associated tags, and it is up to them to go through and create a message that is verified by either Alice and Bob. And we're gonna focus on symmetric algorithms here. So asymmetric crypto is a little bit beyond the scope of this particular talk. But the core idea here is we don't really want Mallory to be able to mess with our messages and have us not know. So that's the core idea here. And again, I'm sort of blowing through this and I might come back to this if I have more time because Mallory is an interesting adversary. But I really wanna focus on at like the fundamental roots of cryptography, there are some limitations. And specifically, taking a look at something like TLS, which is a fully functioning crypto system that fixes a lot of problems with only using encryption or only using message authentication codes or solving more or less, or trying to solve problems like, how do I know I'm talking to the right person? Uh, it doesn't hide the fact that it's using cryptography. It doesn't hide the fact that it's using a protocol. And in fact, it's pretty easy to go through and write rules that detect whether or not you know, you're using TLS. Uh, another good one is, so let's say that you are using asymmetric cryptography in something with elliptic curve groups. It's pretty easy to detect um, whether or not some like stream of bytes is a public key associated to a scheme because it's just going to be a point on the curve um, if you don't use, you know, more modern ones. There are a couple of results, I'm blanking on the name right now, uh, but are effectively um, generating public keys that are indistinguishable from random but the point that I'm trying to make here is using cryptography is not enough when the entire network is malicious. And specifically, if I am using cryptography in a system where it is suspicious to be using cryptography, that can pose an operational risk. So one example being, suppose I love the Signal Messaging app. It's a very, very good app and it uses end-to-end -end encryption. And I prefer this over WhatsApp because I don't really trust WhatsApp, right? They still sell some metadata, but there might be situations where it is actually safer to use WhatsApp instead of Signal. For example, going to a country where the majority of the population uses WhatsApp as opposed to Signal. Another one being Tor is not a panacea. Tor can hide the facts, you know, that you're, you're, Tor can give you anonymity, but it can't hide the fact that you're using Tor. We have a question. Yeah, um, oh, let me close that. So the core concept here is using protocols is, or using cryptography is not enough in a lot of cases. And the situation that I wanna think about a lot today is I have, suppose I've detonated malware on a particular machine and I'm trying to do something on that network, whether that be egressing from the network and receiving commands, downloading a large file, I wanna do something. 
I need to find a way to blend in with the rest of the traffic on that network. And that's a pretty common use case in any sort of cyber operation where I've run my malware on a client's machine. And by the way, this is all like, you know, you're doing adversary simulation or a penetration test, but you are in a situation where you find yourself with a beachhead on a client's network and you want to figure out what's the way to keep communications alive. You want to make it hard for whoever is trying to catch you. And cryptography as it exists right now does have a lot of frameworks around anti-censorship, but the specific adversary that we pen testers face is one who is trying to not necessarily distinguish our traffic from noise, but distinguish our traffic from something that definitely isn't noise. So what do I mean by that? Uh, let's go through and talk about indistinguishable from random noise. So the underpinning of most security arguments that you'll see in modern cryptography are based around this idea of being indistinguishable from a random um, stream of bytes. So that being over here is a stream of bytes generated by my algorithm. Over here are truly random bytes. Again, put a blindfold on a monkey and spin them around. If the monkey can determine which one is random and which one is my algorithm, that's bad. So that said, things get a little bit more interesting when, well, what if the underlying traffic is itself not random noise? Well, then all of a sudden your random data sticks out like a sore thumb. Or what if you're using a communication protocol that doesn't really support cryptography or is using TLS pinning as an example, right? Then if all of a sudden I'm sticking large blobs of base64 encoded data inside of my HTTP payloads, that's really suspicious, right? And the point of all of this is to say, well, a lot of the tradecraft right now has revolved around uh, what are ostensibly uh, best practices. There's really no rigorous treatment of a lot of this. Uh, specifically, how do you go through and blend in? How do you go through and not make a knot of noise? Or maybe if you're using a protocol that conventionally makes a lot of noise, maybe you should make noise with that protocol. So for that, I introduce a new category of adversary that I'm going to be calling Fabian. And I'll do a high-level introduction, and there is a rigorous treatment of a lot of this. Uh, depending on the appetite of the audience, I can go into it. But the core idea here is Fabian has all of the powers of uh, Mallory, with the addition that Fabian owns the network and is able to go through and permanently close communication channels. So you could think of this as during a cyber operation, let's say that your C2 channel is an HTTP server and you spend all of this time getting, you know, you bought something from Namecheap, you put a blog on there, you spent months and months and months getting it popular, some search engine optimization. You want it to be trusted, right? You want sort of basic best practices around, okay, like your C2 server shouldn't be super new. You don't want it to be really easy for someone to write, you know, an if-then rule to blacklist your server. And all of a sudden, Fabian has the power to blacklist it. Fabian has the power to blacklist IPs, to blacklist servers, to close off arbitrary communication channels on their network. And the way that they do this is by trying to distinguish traffic from known good. So a simple example being, let's say that Fabian owns a network and Alice and Bob are trying to start a union. And let's say they're not using any encryption. And Fabian has a hard-coded rule for if talking about union block. This is something that you see with problems of censorship 
Or as an example, let's say that you are detonating malware on a machine and you're using an open source framework. So Cobalt Strike, as an example, has a like pretty predictable uh, pattern in the HTTP payloads that it uses. And if you just see that on your network, you can be like, oh yeah, this is suspicious, I'm gonna blacklist it. So the whole point here is we wanna devise a way for Alice and Bob to exchange data in a way that doesn't differentiate it from other streams of data flowing across the wire. So, so sorry to interrupt for a second, Kai. Can I ask a question about one example that's slight, that's not really related to C2, but might be relevant to see if oh. I get the concept or it helps other people. So one thing that happened you can think of is Gmail, where maybe Fabian is the spam blocker and the known good is real emails that you'd like to get and the thing that Fabian or Gmail spam is trying to block is some spam mail. Would that be getting the concept right? Is that a good analogy? Kind of. So it's a little bit more subtle with uh, trying to send arbitrary data, where mm -hmm. in the context of a spam filter, it's not necessarily like, so the job of like trying to distinguish like known good from like known bad, that does fall in line with the spam filter. What Fabian is trying to do is block channels. So. A closer one might be, let's say that you get a phishing email from a known email address, and I'm trying to trick you into clicking a link. Fabian's job would be to block that email from ever getting there or blocking Alice from clicking the link. Okay, so Fabian, rather than being a Gmail spam filter, it's more like your friend's mom who got hacked on Facebook and is now going to send stuff to her contacts list, where she's sending a bunch of good data and now is sending bad data. Yeah, exactly. Okay, great. Um, Thank you. You have a like pool of data flowing across the network, and it is your job to distinguish. So I'll, I'll formalize this in a little bit, but the core idea here is there is some process that generates traffic that is known to Fabian to be standard. So imagine I have a network where every day, like people on it make somewhere between like 500 and 1,000 HTTP requests. And if all of a sudden one of them is making 10 million, that's weird, right? So it is maybe not necessarily like concerned with malicious from non-malicious, but standard from highly anomalous. And it is our job as the attacker trying to go through and communicate over a monitored channel in a way that doesn't set off any alarm bells. And is there a question in the chat? Indistinguishable from Netflix. That's actually a really good point. When we talk about trusted third parties, I will bring this up again. Um, but just before I go on, I want to make sure that we understand the idea of uh, this threat model, because it's kind of different from standard communication channels or the security games that we've played in the past, where now we're not just concerned with making sure that our messages are secret. We're not just concerned with making sure that the messages um, have integrity and that they can't be modified easily. We're also not just concerned with ensuring identity, which I've sort of glossed over a little bit, but for now, pretend we know that Alice is talking to Bob um, and Eve can't lie about that or Mallory can't lie about that or we've hard-coded it or something. But all of this to say, now we're also dealing with, here is some standard stream of data and we are trying to blend in with it. And this is exactly the job we have during an offensive operation of trying to egress from a network or maintain access to a network. And this requires a lot of the time, a lot of firsthand knowledge of how the network works. So uh, now that I've glossed over a lot of things, let's talk about situations in which Fabian just wins. And this is going to align with what you'll observe in like a red team engagement where 
let's say you don't know anything about the client and you try to drop something that's just completely stock made. So one of them being if I am dealing with a client that doesn't use something and I try to use that thing, I am going to stick out like a sore thumb. So as an example, let's say I'm trying to do uh, XFIL over Gmail, where I'm trying to send all of the data over Gmail, and that's how I'm going to steal data. Well, if the organization is using Outlook, that's going to be suspicious. If the client has very good programs in place for protecting their data, that means they're going to lock down other email providers. And if anything, a large, uh, you know, a large file flying over the wire via email should itself also be suspicious. If I'm going to go through and try to send data to a site or a service that's already blocked, that's kind of suspicious. So a good example of that being um, there are a lot of dynamic DNS providers that will give you a free domain name, basically. But a lot of them are used for sort of sketchy purposes. So I shouldn't really, if I'm on a network that I control, I'm not going to let my clients go through and connect to something that's, you know, duck DNS, right, or no IP. Another one is you can look at anomalous rates. So a very, very popular method of tunneling traffic on a locked down network is via DNS, and we'll talk about that. But one of the big problems with using DNS as a communication channel in this way is to send data back to the server requires making lots and lots of DNS requests. So if you go through and try to use a channel or use a protocol that is leveraged by the client or is leveraged by Fabian's network, but you do so in a way that is anomalous, you're going to get burned. So another one being is, let's say that Fabian's network has, is generating traffic in a completely deterministic way. So as an example, let's say that my beachhead is a server and all that server is designed to do is every 30 seconds perform a health check. If I deviate from that, that is going to be suspicious. So what happens or what are some examples of when Fabian just loses? So one example being is Fabian doesn't know how to analyze it. So one of my favorite examples is, and this has happened more times than I care to admit, but I have been on an engagement with a client where I have detonated an implant that uses HTTP2 and established a long-term connection which shouldn't really be possible in, you know, sort of modern environments, right? They've gotten really good at sort of locking down things like reverse TCP shells, where you establish a persistent connection and send and receive uh, commands over that. You can do the exact same thing with HTTP2, which is the successor or one of the successors of HTTP that allows for sending and receiving data over a single connection. And the reason that this has been really effective is because the people that build these analysis environments to look at this network traffic they just might not support it. So this sort of goes both ways where notice that there's a pretty big overlap between using something that isn't used on the network and also using something that they don't really know how to analyze. So this is sort of a judgment call based around what your like analysis of like the client's maturity is. Uh, and depending on like what it is you're trying to do, where if you're trying to figure out where their weaknesses are, you should definitely deploy this. And if you're trying to do a more low and slow, don't get caught, then maybe don't rely on this. Another one, and this is another great one, is lost or destroyed telemetry. So this doesn't work as frequently now, but for the longest time, you could just go through and set a Windows firewall rule for the place where all of this telemetry would get aggregated. 
Uh, this is for on-host enumeration or on-host exploitation or post-exploitation. But specifically, let's say I have an antivirus running and it's sending telemetry to an analysis environment which is going to respond to actions that I take. If I set a firewall rule that just never gets there, if you don't have a way to detect that, you're just screwed. Another one could be, ah, I could just hack the net, I could just hack your router, right? If I can hack your router and mess with things there, if you don't get the uh, data to analyze, you're kind of out of luck. And then my personal favorite, egress channels that are too expensive to analyze. Specifically, and this is kind of related to the haystack too big, but WebRTC traffic, which has become pretty ubiquitous on most client environments or most environments, uh, something that you'll see with, let's say, uh, Microsoft Teams or Slack or Zoom, is a protocol that uses UDP and tends to send pretty large amounts of data that are encrypted. And as a result, because of A, how large it is, and B, it's UDP, a lot of solutions that try to decrypt traffic and analyze them don't work with WebRTC. So let's talk about a way to actually, and by the way, any questions on this before I move on? Sweet. So let's talk about a way that we can go through and make Fabian's life more difficult. So again, I've sort of talked a little bit about like our job is to blend in, right? And I haven't really talked about, well, what does it mean to blend in? Um, especially if I'm coming onto a network with no real knowledge of its inner workings. I don't know how traffic is generated, or maybe I do from a past engagement, but let's say that I'm coming onto a network completely blind, I need to make judgment calls, or I need to have malware that is capable of deciding what channel to use. So let's go through and define informally, in this case, what is going to make a channel covert. So first and foremost, Fabian should not be able to reliably distinguish our traffic from usual traffic. There is going to be some process, probably probabilistic, that generates traffic that egresses his network. And our traffic should be indistinguishable from that. In the case that all of the traffic being sent off of the network is itself indistinguishable from random, then we're home free, right? There's nothing to be done. But in a lot of cases, they will have analysis environments that are capable of inspecting all traffic that exits the network. And as a result, the distribution that governs traffic leaving their network is probably not going to be indistinguishable from random noise. And as a result, if we are going to use that method for sending data out, we need to account for that. We need to not be so obvious. Uh, and then another one being, and this is very much operation dependent, right? I've sort of alluded to this concept of operational deadlines, where again, let's say I'm a ransomware operator trying to go through and lock down a network. So long as your files stay encrypted, I don't care if you saw me doing host enumeration. I don't care if you figure out how I did privilege escalation or lateral movement. So long as your files stay locked, I'm happy. So here we are going to have the malware operator mark specific pieces of data as, I want this secret. So anything that I have marked as secret, unless you are a well-placed adversary in the moment that I am sending it, you should not be able to figure out what I sent. It should remain secret. Any questions on these two? Um, for the second one, can you give an example of what that information might be or why you would want to have something secret like that? 
Absolutely. So uh, and I gave the example for ransomware where my entire operation is designed or my entire goal of the operation is to lock all of your files in such a way where I can extort you for money. Then if the files can be decrypted, I have not done my job. Another one could be suppose that I am targeting a specific entity that I don't want it to be public that they're being targeted. This could be someone sensitive and I don't want to go through and leave a trace. So one thing that might be obvious is, suppose I'm using malware that's been publicly attributed to me, then I don't want there to be any traces of that malware on disk. And if I have a particular playbook, maybe I want to go through and lock down what that is. So in the case of a ransomware operator, it might not matter that we're able to figure out how they laterally move, how they go through and get on a box to begin with, but suppose that I'm going through and doing something with different objectives, specifically, I don't want it to be clear how those objectives were carried out, then some of that data might want to be secret. Another one might be, suppose that I'm going through and exfiltrating data off a network and I don't want it to be clear, you know, whose records I stole or what data was moved, then maybe you want that data to be encrypted. Gotcha. So this is something you generally care about in a lot of situations, not just ransomware. Correct. Okay, great. Thanks. Uh, and a lot of this also ties into, so there might be some situations where encryption just might be expensive. So as an example, or maybe sending responses might be expensive. So again, one of my favorite examples of this being DNS, it's a very, very reliable channel, and you can go through and create it in such a way that you have a very high throughput, but that makes a lot of noise. And it makes a lot of noise compared to what regular DNS traffic looks like. And as a result, if you're going to be sending any data, you might want to limit that. So another one might be, suppose I have malware that goes through, it has an internal log. I might want to encrypt that log file, right? I might not want it to be decryptable by anyone but me. So that's another one. If I run a host enumeration script, and let's say it's too large to leave in memory and I have to write it to disk, I might not want, no, I might not want the defenders to know exactly what it is that I'm enumerating for. Does that make sense? Cool, cool. It seems like the less encrypted data you have going back and forth normally in the network stream, the more similar this problem becomes to something like stenography, right? Where you really yep. have to creatively hide the messages you want to send. For example, I would imagine if there are random nonces used in some packets, then you could replace the random nonces with your data. And that would be hidden because they expect it to look kind of random. But like, yeah. if nothing is encrypted and you have just the most naive possible protocols, then you're stuck with these fundamental dilemmas like, okay, all the person does is Netflix, which means I have to somehow write messages through sequences of message, you know, Netflix queries. And at some point the algorithm is gonna say, screw you, nobody's watching that particular combination of movies that makes no sense whatsoever, right? So like the problem becomes harder and harder and harder, the more, I guess, structured and the less encrypted the data is. Is that correct? Yeah, and sort of more to that point, the more predictable the client data is, the harder it is to blend in with it. Right. But to that exactly. point, and I'm gonna jump ahead a little bit and sort of tease at, um, I didn't do this for Netflix, I did do this for Hulu, because uh, Netflix is better at locking down their APIs with all the VPN nonsense, but effectively, or was it, was it Hulu or HBO? I think it was actually HBO. But basically you can go through and create profiles and the profiles can have alphanumeric characters and they can also have emojis. So what does that mean? That means you can put Unicode characters in the profile name. So you can't send 
that much data to Netflix or HBO or Hulu or whatever, but you can. If I share account credentials with two entities, one on the network and one off the network, then you can establish a command and control framework that is based solely on changing the profile name. Um, but there's not that much data that you can send. It is extremely slow. But for a very low and slow type operation, that might be preferable if the only method of egress is, say, Hulu. Like, you know, imagine like a spy agency that's like filled with people that get bored during the day. And rather than creating a mirror of Hulu, they just give you access to Hulu because, you know, what could you possibly steal over Hulu, right? Well, maybe I can go through and submit support tickets. Maybe I can go through and change my profile name. Like it's this idea of being able to modify data at like a sort of like checkpoint and then read it from some other place. We're going to talk a lot about that. <coughs> um, but let's use a concrete example. And this is the one that I like to use whenever I model how viable a covert C2 channel is for a given operation. So specifically, I have a computer that is somewhere on an internal network that is controlled by someone who doesn't like me. And I am trying to get this thing that lives on disk somewhere off of that network. And we can even assume that Fabian knows I'm going to try to mess with this. So this could be the example of trying to go for the crown jewels of an organization. So that could be their IP, that can be their customer data, that can be all sorts of things. And I'm trying to get it off their network. This can be really, really small. This could be terabytes of data. All the same, I want to find a way to get it off the network. And to make things a little bit more concrete, we're going to assume that Fabian has a very powerful analysis framework, specifically. And the one that I've used in sort of like, you know, toy examples is an nth degree or an nth order Markov process to go through and model network traffic, and specifically the frequency and the size of packets and the destination of them. But effectively, there is some probabilistic process or some stochastic process that is going to go through and generate data on the wire. And our job is to create a communication channel that is indistinguishable from traffic generated by that process. Fabian is sitting on the wire. Fabian is seeing all of the data fly through. We're going to not use the example of popping routers because I can't do that. Uh, or I'm not going to do that on a red team engagement, right? And the main idea here being, well, I want to get it off the network somehow. So I want it to blend in. And what do we mean by blend in? There is some generating distribution that creates all of the traffic that egresses the network. And our traffic should be indistinguishable from that. Again, this idea of taking a monkey and putting a blindfold on it, spinning it around. I'm either going to show it a stream of traffic that was generated legitimately or a stream of traffic that was generated illegitimately or not illegitimately, just, you know, by us. So any questions on that? Cool. So this is like a very standard, like, I'm trying to go through and capture the flag or plant a flag. I'm trying to go through and get something off of a network. And I'm going to spend the rest of the talk, because I think I just spent most of it dealing with, you know, background. Um, <laughs> uh, that's OK, though. We're going to talk about ways of doing this. So Max, to your point, the basic strategy that I use in most engagements is going to be steganography and signaling. And I don't think I explicitly define what signaling here is, but I'll talk about that in a little bit. But the basic idea 
is we want it to be difficult for Fabian to look at a giant stack of data and determine which of that data belongs to us, which of it is anomalous. And we're also going to have some, you know, restrictions on Fabian's amount of work that he's going to put in. Uh, for one thing, he probably only has a tolerance for a probabilist or a polynomial number of false positives. So we're going to assume that Fabian has some sort of analysis pipeline and is only able to go through and kill connections, you know, sometimes and whatever. There is a way to make all this rigorous. But the basic idea here is there is some stochastic process generating traffic. There is some amount of work that Fabian is willing to do per connection. And we want to go through and pull one under on him. And this is something that I want to spend a little bit of time on, specifically talking about message size. So when talking about an operation, you typically have your long haul implant, which is designed for persistent access. And it is something that doesn't really talk off the network that much. Because in most situations, the more you try to communicate off the network, the more you're going to stand out depending on the protocol. If I choose, as an example, HTTP as my method of egressing, and I can fit some fixed size amount of data per request, then the more requests that I make to my server, the more noisy that HTTP connection becomes. So again, this is protocol dependent. If I have a protocol that it's kind of suspicious to send lots and lots and lots of requests from and to, a little suspicious. So I sometimes refer to the as constrained C2 channels, not necessarily in the sense that we are restricted in the amount of data that we can send, but we are restricted in the amount of data that we can safely send. Safely meaning Fabian doesn't catch us. And one of the nice things about a lot of these is we can be asynchronous with our communications. I can send an HTTP request telling the C2 server, hey, still alive, and then check back in a month from now or six months from now. Doesn't matter. Right, you can be very, very low and slow with this. So one of the nice things is, okay, well, we have low and slow, but it's kind of hard to get things done when your message size is that limited. So then we have this notion of what is called an interactive session. So this could be a synchronous one or a lot, a lot, a lot of asynchronous ones sort of back and forth. So you can just keep constantly sending HTTP requests. But this is going to be better for larger data transfers. So if I want to go through and get the flag or that special document off of that network, I got to go through and find a way to get it off either with a lot of really small ones spread out over a long period of time or find a protocol where it's not really weird to send a ton of data. So let's start talking about protocols and let's start talking about how to be sneaky. So the typical ones that you'll see that will work on most will be HTTP. And this depends on where you find yourself. Most of your beachheads are going to come from typically phishing, or if your beachhead comes from phishing and you find yourself on a workstation, it's pretty normal for a workstation to use HTTP, right? That's not really strange. And this is a very, very good C2 pro or C2 channel for uh, persistent access to uh, a workstation. But let's say that I somehow find myself on a domain controller right away. Well, A, that's kind of weird that it's internet connected at all, but maybe somehow I have an exploit that just gets me there, right? But if I start trying to communicate over HTTP from the domain controller, well, that's not normally something that domain controllers that are doing what they're supposed to be doing do, right? 
A better protocol for that might be SMB or just use RPCs or use mail slots. Uh, another one which is kind of nice for, okay, HTTP is great for asynchronous communications, but what if you need to do something interactively? What if I want my reverse shell? Well, WebSockets is something that has become more and more popular and effectively gives you all the power of a persistent connection and you're able to send and receive data using the same connection from the server. Where with HTTP, every single check-in, every single message, every single response, that requires a new connection. And with this one, you can reuse the connection in a way that's not really as suspicious. DNS is another great one where text records have sort of become locked down a little bit more. But if I am the you know, uh, authoritative name server for a domain that I control, then, well, if I ask for, well, what is the, you know, a record for blah.mydns.com, I can say whatever I want, and I can hide data in there. Another common one is, let's say you use an exploit and find yourself on an internal Unix server or Linux server. A lot of the time, mail is installed by default, and for whatever reason, even if it's behind a firewall, typically you can route to the open internet with SMTP. Same thing with DNS. Sometimes even with SSH. And then I'll spend a little bit more time on WebRTC. Uh, so Max, time for your favorite part. Let's talk about steganography. So this is a general uh, approach to hiding data inside of a message, typically putting a message inside of another message or some kind of object. And the whole point of this is I should be able to surreptitiously embed some information or data in an object without the object looking too much different, right? So we're going to specifically talk about taking something that is indistinguishable from random. Doesn't have to be, but for this, it'll just be our ciphertext. And we're going to try to put it in something that is not indistinguishable from random, that is coming from some known distribution. See where this is going? This is going to be how we go through and make Fabian's life a living hell. So yes, there's image steganography and text steganography and network steganography, but as a general approach, we're going to take something that is generated according to effectively what looks like an IID, you know, sequence of, you know, coin flips and turn it into something that doesn't necessarily look like that. That's the trick here. So the easy case for steganography is, well, what if the place that, what if the object itself is itself indistinguishable from random? Well, now that's easy. As an example for HTTP, and this is something that I've used for long haul C2s and I've had luck with like, I think six months as my record for a red team engagement where I've had the beacon just stay there. And I've used that to kickstart off more back doors when my louder noisy ones got caught. And all I did was offered a very, very small system of sequence of commands, all encoded as opcodes that it was able to send and receive to the server. It could say, okay, I'm doing this command, or hi, I'm still alive. And the way that I did this was, I took advantage of a couple of built-in uh, mitigations for web app security. So specifically, there is something called a CSRF token, which is used to prevent a special kind of attack where you can effectively trick someone into making a request on a page without them ever visiting it. And this is something that is set by the server every single time you visit a new page, and as a result is a random piece of data that you should not be able to predict stored in either a cookie or a better yet a header. And to the network, this doesn't look suspicious. You're just sending data that is otherwise supposed to be random. 
You can do the exact same thing with session tokens or session IDs. You can do this with advertising IDs. All of this is just a way to make it harder for Fabian to differentiate that specific data from other random data. So one thing that I'm omitting here as well, can't Fabian just you know, block my HTTP server? And that's a very big assumption. So right now we're gonna assume that he can't, but we'll deal with the case where he can. So again, this particular protocol is pretty slow, um, where if I can only put in 32 bytes of data at a time, like this is a very, very low and slow approach and very useful for flying under the radar. But again, like, what if I want to do something a little bit more noisy? What if I want to go through and actually interact, send data, receive data? I mean, maybe I want to go through and open up a VNC session. Maybe I want to go through and create a SOX proxy, reverse SOX proxy, so I can just start port scanning the network or whatever. There are all sorts of reasons why you might want to send more data than this. So let's think about the harder case, where maybe where we're trying to hide our data isn't necessarily indistinguishable from random. And in this case, it's actually not too hard to go through and effectively put a compatibility layer on top of our byte stream. So if the bytes that are being generated are according to, instead of let's say IID, you know, Bernoulli with probability P is a half, and I want it to be, let's say 0.75, I can go through and put a compatibility layer on top of my stream that is synchronized between client and server in such a way that the ciphertext that I create is still has all the security properties that I wanted before, but in addition to this, looks like it was generated according to a IID sequence of Bernoulli coin flips where the probability of heads is 0.75. And if you actually have access to you know, the uh, Markov process that let's say Fabian has access to, then you can always do this, right? But a lot of the time you just don't have access to that. So let's deal with larger examples. So uh, I think I already talked, I think I'm running out of time. Yeah, Max, we're done at seven, right? Yeah, I mean, if you want to go 15 minutes over, it's totally fine. Whatever okay. works best for you. Uh, uh, I already we, might, we might lose audience members, though, at some point if they have <laughs> other obligations. <laughs> uh, it's, it's all good. I think I already covered DNS briefly, so I'll skip that. WebSockets I covered. Uh, one of my favorite C2 channels is WebRTC, and specifically WebRTC that I hijack from a legitimate application. This is sort of like you know an absolute godsend uh, to red team operations where here you have a protocol that allows you to get behind a NAT. It allows you to send large amounts of data synchronously in a way that is tough to analyze. It allows you to go through and connect multiple peers. So imagine like a Zoom call with 50 people, that's a peer-to-peer -peer connection. Uh, you might have to use a ton server or a stun server. You might have to use a ton server if you know the firewall rules are created in such a like rigorous way. But at the end of the day, like you're still able to connect lots of computers together. And if you're doing something that requires you to go, let's say multiple hops deep into a network, you can use a WebRTC instance as a beachhead of egress. You can, let's say, daisy chain a bunch of named pipes on a bunch of computers on a network, route all that traffic to the beachhead that is streaming this data using WebRTC. And all the while, it's not really that suspicious to have a very long-lived WebRTC connection. If you guys ever been on a Zoom call that lasted six hours, I have. It sucks. But you can use this to send and receive data. And specifically, all you have to do is effectively run the Zoom client in the background and then just inject into the function that sends data. 
and then hook the function that receives data. And you can use this for Microsoft Teams, Zoom, Slack, straight up Google Chrome if you're trying to use like Google Meet. There are a lot of ways of abusing this. And if you're just using vanilla WebRTC, you're still vulnerable to this problem of, well, maintaining you know, high quality domains is kind of annoying, especially for mature clients that implement whitelists. So if Fabian instead blocks all domains that are you know, not something that have been properly aged or just doesn't want to let people off, you're kind of screwed unless you're able to take advantage of a service that is on the whitelist. So this is where we sort of put it all together, where once you're on a network, it's a lot easier to fly under the radar because it's kind of hard to um, you know, analyze all of the peer-to-peer -peer traffic, all the RPC calls, all the SMB traffic, but most companies focus on egress points. So we're gonna combine trusted third parties, WebRTC, daisy-chained connections, and cryptography. Uh, one of the most effective C2 channels that I've used is effectively hijacking WebRTC from a beachhead, say a workstation, and probably has it by default. Most companies will have a Microsoft Teams, a Slack, a Zoom, something that allows you to take advantage of that kind of connection, or they just have Google Chrome or a Chrome-based browser. Now that Windows has Edge installed by default, you're always gonna have WebRTC available. And as a result, you don't have to rely on bringing your own protocols that can deal with WebRTC. You can just have the beachhead by strictly living off the land with a little bit of hooking and magic. So from the perspective of Fabian, his options are to now read all of the communications being sent on Slack, analyze all of the traffic that flows via video call, or try to do behavior analysis about the frequency of Zoom calls. But most companies aren't at a point where they're capable of doing that kind of analysis. So again, you have to watch out for quick hits here. Like if I get on a network that uses Microsoft Teams, I probably shouldn't establish a tunnel using Slack. If I get on a company that, you know, has their own internal messaging service or whatever, like I should use whatever they're using, right? And as a result, you basically put the burden of work on Fabian to go through and also analyze those protocols, those services. And in a lot of cases, that might not be viable, right? And you can take this exact same approach with, let's say you get onto a developer's laptop. It's pretty normal for developers to go through and establish SSH connections. And most of those aren't man in the middle by the company for security reasons. And as a result, they can't really snoop on the traffic that's being sent outside of indicators like the size of the data. So all of this to say, <coughs> if you're trying to defeat a Fabian, what you need to do is identify tools that are already used by the organization you're targeting, find a way to go through and determine how much data can be sent and received by those channels, and establish a way to both send small amounts via long-haul beacons and long-haul implants and interactive sessions using something like WebRTC or specifically like using Zoom, which under the hood uses WebRTC and Chrome, which uses WebRTC. Um, but this same sort of methodology of uh, identifying common protocols that are used by the organization you're targeting and just using those, that makes it a lot more difficult to distinguish from especially if you have information about the behavior of people. So one thing that I've like actually gotten burned with in the past was I left a WebRTC session open for 12 hours. So people have long Zoom calls, but typically not that long. 
But a way around that was beaconing behavior with WebRTC, or sorry, WebSockets with Microsoft Teams. Microsoft Teams will constantly let the other people know that your thing is still online or you're away. And as a result, you can hijack messages like that to go through and actually signal to someone, um, you know, binary bits of data. So this is, I think, one of the cooler C2s I built out, but the core concept is you keep changing your status from here away or after, you know, do not disturb, and you keep oscillating that, and you can basically send, you know, uh, you know, base three messages to a receiver on the other end. Like you can get really creative with this. You can use all sorts of weird signaling protocols. Signaling here meaning you're not actually sending data. You're modifying something which can be checked by someone else to encode data there. You're hiding data in that. And because of this, it makes it a lot more difficult to catch. Uh, and I think that's what I wanted to cover. So uh, let's open it up to questions. Hi, this was a kick-ass talk. Thank you very much. Um, why don't, uh, I'll, I'll ask a, an easy question and then some of the smarter people on the call can ask harder questions. Uh, so can you, or have you tried doing signaling by rather than injecting data, stopping existing data from passing through? I'm imagining, for instance, somebody is uh, has a really reliable connection and they're watching Netflix. It's probably over UDP because you don't really give a shit if you drop a couple frames. Um, but it's like reliable enough that with high probability, every packet makes it through. So you just start selectively dropping packets in order to send the message in Morse code or something like that, right? Yeah. So one thing that I've actually been tinkering with, and I haven't gotten working yet, um, but the core idea here is you can use what are called watch parties which effectively it synchronizes two streams across two parties. And that's really fun because if you're over here on party A and you screw with the stream, party B gets notified. It pauses the stream and synchronizes that way. So uh, you can do that with you wanna use Netflix. Another one being you can just use timing. Like you can just go through and like ping a server. And if the server responds in one second, great, do something. If it responds in two seconds, do something. And you can just add this random noise to make it hard to fingerprint. And you can encode data this way. So here, you don't have to encode data by physically sending it across the wire. Signaling in this context is actions being encoded as data. So another one being, I have like a website that I control and I just start spidering it. And the order in which I visit the websites with my specific cookie signals my response. Like, there are all sorts of crazy things you can do with this, uh, especially if you go through and actually decouple the functionality where um, a lot of the tradecraft nowadays has been moving towards like centralized processes where you run like object files or raw shell code. And that's all well and good, but you can also go through and break apart that functionality. So if something gets burned over here, like not the end of the world. So you can sort of have this like supervising approach where when something dies over here, you can just respawn it over here with the long haul and you can signal to the server that you've done this. And another good one being like, okay, like let's say that I'm establishing a TLS handshake. There is a cipher suite available. I can encode a message based on opening a bunch of TLS, hand, like making a bunch of TLS handshakes. I wanna speak, you know, AES in GCM mode. Just kidding. I wanna speak, you know, Cha Cha Poly 13005. I wanna speak whatever. like. You can keep using that to just signal data. The problem with those protocols though is they start to make noise. 
and don't become a super reliable channel for large streams of data. Um, but signaling is very powerful. Awesome. Thanks for the talk, Kai. That was really cool. So I'm curious about something slightly unrelated, which is you talked a ton about all of this C2, how to expel stuff in fancy ways. And this is super interesting, but also super sophisticated, right? Like it takes a lot of years of experience and training for you to be able to do all these cool different things and be aware of all these different technologies. How often is it actually worth these large companies' times to hire someone like you or your team? Like, are there a lot more black hat guys than there are white hat guys? Like, what? I don't know if that's one you can even answer, but I'm curious. No. <laughs> uh, the punchline there is it depends on the company. Um, it doesn't make sense for like Antonio's Pizza to hire me. Like, that's that's silly, right? Most people have to be afraid of smash and grab, ransomware. And if you got a chance to look at the Conti playbook, it's stuff that every red teamer and like their mom looked at and was like, this would get you burned by anyone. And the point there being like most people aren't at a maturity or most organizations aren't at a maturity where um, you're, they're going to like be able to detect a lot of the basic stuff. Uh, where like one of the hills that I will die on is sure you can get a fancy EDR, but if you don't have people, you know, behind like the desk at the sock, like responding to it, like you're kind of shit out of luck. So all of this is sort of like tailored towards like really lockdown environments where you're like real, like they have like a very mature analysis platform. And even in the absence of such a sophisticated platform, then the model still applies because if they're not able to catch HTTP true traffic, or they're not even going through and doing TLS pinning, then, hey, you can just use encryption and call it a day, right? Like, they're not going to catch that. So I sort of tailored all of this for, like, the really exotic cases where someone is, like, really trying to catch you or knows you're coming. Uh, and it's sort of more, you know, designed for that. Uh, another place that I see this possibly being useful is large-scale surveillance and how do you go through and defeat the Great Firewall of China? Or more interestingly, how do you make it more expensive for them? Uh, which I would also be interested in. So this sort of thing like sort of has the dual purpose of like me being an operator trying to get something off a network and a large distributed collection of people trying to egress from a network as well. And that network might be like considerably more complicated where the Great Firewall of China, like a lot of what it does is rule-based. And if you can up the cost of surveilling all of that traffic, you might not be able to you know, totally prevent them from censoring communication, but you can make it way more expensive for them to do it. And that's like part of the cat and mouse game here. Like the defender always has the advantage because they under, or they should, um, in like a mature environment, they will understand the network that they have, the devices that they have, who should be talking to what. Um, like, you know, if I'm on a network and all of a sudden like, you know, my domain controller is talking to Slack or talking to like, you know, super cool, whatever dot duckdns.com. That's kind of weird, right? <laughs> so a lot of it just comes down to is the client at a point where they understand their network, they understand what assets they have, and they have a team that's capable of like responding because otherwise it's an absolute waste of time and money to hire like someone to come in and beat you up and then just leave. Um, but yeah, so I hope that answered your question. It's a little bit of a rant, but yeah, it does. I've got another one, but I'll leave the floor for someone else if anyone else has any. Okay, I will. Oh, there's some stuff in chat. 
percentage allocations. I guess like, is that asking what percentage of things get hacked? Ah, uh, okay. It's a hundred percent Windows. Everybody knows this. <laughs> well, I mean, it depends, right? So if I'm doing uh, an engagement, I'm like probably not going to hack the CTO's phone, right? Like, A, if it's Apple, that's just kind of expensive to do. And B, even if it's Android, I got to fish the guy and that's like pretty noisy, right? So all it, it really depends on what it is you're looking at. So if it's most organizations, you're going to be dealing with something that is probably an Active Directory environment where most workstations are either Windows or a small percentage of them Apple. But even if they're Apple, you know, even if they're, if they're uh, Mac OS, you're dealing with like, still you have Kerberos, you still have caching of tickets, you still have like a lot of these trust issues. Um, and you still have the same like, it doesn't necessarily matter that the malware is like Windows or Apple or on a server. It's kind of context dependent of if I'm on like an IoT box and I start speaking, like if I'm on like a smart camera and I start speaking SMB, that's really weird. If I'm on like Mac OS and I start like, you know, I don't know, like communicating with like mail slots, that's really weird. If I am like, like it's just sort of like context dependent on the server and what it's doing. In terms of like the distribution of malware out there, because most servers are running some form of Linux, you're gonna find a lot of Linux malware, but there aren't really as sophisticated like detections for it yet. Like they're starting to come out, but um, the malware isn't typically that interesting. Um, or when it is, it's really interesting. Like I sort of like, there's really no in between. Um, but the vast majority of malware that I look at is Windows. And a lot of the times it's talking to servers that have been hacked that are themselves Linux. Because if I'm going through and building a botnet, I don't want to like have my main C2 visible. I want it to be behind a couple layers of other services. Um, but it's mostly Windows. There's a lot of mobile malware too. Back when I worked at Lookout, that was like exclusively what I looked at. Um, and there's like a lot of it out there, despite the fact that most of the time you only get it by social engineering, a lot, a lot of people get hit with it. Um, and that again, like depending on who's the one deploying it. That's cool. Thanks, guys. So I'll ask uh, one more question, unless anyone else has one for now. But that has to do with kind of looking at the history of cryptography and potentially applying that to covert channels. So to grossly oversimplify all the cool things you talked about, cryptography is about readability and covert channels is about hideability, right? So good cryptography is saying, Sure, you can see it, but you can't read it. And a good covert channel is what covert channel? So cryptography is interesting because historically people didn't have public key cryptography. They were like, nobody's going to guess this special way that I wrote it backwards or added a one in front of all my ASCII bytes or something, right? There are all these things that are breakable if you know how. Mm -hmm. And there was an academic invention of even if you know how, you probably can't break it unless you can do this complexity theory thing, like factoring an insane number. Yep. So do you think that uh, covert channels and this sort of hideability thing, are we in the wild west phase of before someone invents something like public key and there are people just trying all these things and look, you can do it through Slack or WebRTC, or is it the case that there isn't any innovation there and this is sort of all there is? Uh, it depends on who you ask. So. Uh, one of the like major, major breakthroughs, and I didn't really talk about public key that much, but 
Uh, for those of you that are unfamiliar, you basically have this magical thing where I can shout something at Jacob, and Jacob can shout something at me, and you all could have heard it. I've never met Jacob before. I mean, that's not true. I've met you before, but in this example, I haven't met you before. And we walk away with a shared secret, or you're able to verify that I am who I say I am, and it's this incredibly powerful thing. With the big problem up until recently, uh, public keys aren't indistinguishable from random. That's like a major problem. And as a result, especially because generating curve parameters is like kind of expensive and hard to do. And, you know, uh, we tend to not trust the people that, you know, do generate them, except for maybe Bernstein. But what is interesting is there's this new framework that's, I think, pretty recent, like a couple of years called Alligator 2. And the basic idea is hiding the fact that you are using a point on a curve. So being able to generate public keys that are themselves indistinguishable from random. So that's been a major, major breakthrough. Uh, because now, if you are dealing with a channel where all of the data needs to be indistinguishable from random for it to fly across the wire, you can't easily detect that you're using elliptic curve cryptography as a handshake. You can also use oblivious transfers. You can use something like GoPake, which is very powerful. But in terms of like, how do you go through and solve the problem of censorship? That kind of comes down to like this idea of like protocol obfuscation, where um, one thing that I relied on pretty heavily before I started cooking up all of these little tools is this idea of, well, most analysis environments are signature based. And as a result, if you figure out a protocol that a tool uses, like what headers does it hide the data in, where does it hide, like whatever, like there's like the underlying protocol like HTTP, and then there's how do you serialize your message? How do you take your data and stick it in that protocol? So take the dumb example of just putting a giant blob of base64 data, you can signature that. If you're Cobalt Strike and you're the default one, you can use like something that looks like, um, I think Ajax is the default, and you hide data in the body, like you can signature that. So what do you do? You procedurally generate a bunch of weird looking protocols that do weird things and not in a deterministic way and in a non-repeating way. And as a result, you can't signature that as easily. An underlying problem that keeps coming up though is it's getting harder and harder to get domains that are high quality. And with the sort of fixing of the problem of domain fronting, which is sort of abusing other people's CDNs, it's a lot harder to hide services. So. This is why trusted third parties have become a lot more popular because it's a lot harder to block them. Where it's the wild west and that we haven't really figured out like a surefire way to create this like egress method that hides who you're talking to. And that's kind of in part just because of how IP works or how IPsec works. And you can try to like hide yourself behind proxies or you can try to like hide yourself with like new domain names and DGAs, but if I have a whitelist, you're kind of out of luck. So this by no means solves the problem of censorship because my model is typically like, I want to be able to do something and maintain access. I don't care if I get caught like once or twice. And in fact, most of the time, like during an operation, I get caught a couple times. I'll run something and maybe antivirus catches it or like the sock catches it, but I always have something. In like a real world situation where let's say I'm trying to go through and organize like a rally in Hong Kong, like I'm not, I'm not risking getting caught, right? So uh, I think what you're going to start to see are alternate communication channels when it comes to like defeating censorship with 
physical networks where you can go through and actually obfuscate traffic using wireless and Bluetooth to make it indistinguishable from sort of standard looking traffic. That's kind of a solved problem. Um, that said, you can still look at the volume of it um, and that might be suspicious. Uh, at the end of the day, like one of the big limiting factors of this framework is if you don't fully understand the probable, the stochastic process that's generating all this traffic, you can't optimize against it. So the defender always has the advantage. The point here just being, you can basically raise the cost of being a defender, and as a result, raise the cost of being an adversary by like catching more of the sort of like standard things. Because um, at the end of the day, it's like not necessarily tractable to make an argument that's like, okay, like I'm gonna rigorously show you that I am indistinguishable from an empirical distribution that I measured that changes on the daily, like, well, no, right? Like, um, it's just like a framework. So in terms of like covert C2 channels, like we're in the thick of it. Like there are people doing some really cool things. Like I'm a very big fan of trusted third parties, but even those have their drawbacks, right? Um, there are like really interesting ways of like, whenever you have a C2, you need to go through and do a couple of things. You need to tell the C2 who you are. You need to tell the C2 where you are. And tell the C2 how much privilege do you have. That's typically like what you need to do, um, among other things. And there are all sorts of really cool ways of telling the C2 who you are. There are really, really cool ways of telling the C2 where you are. Privileges you can also tunnel, but it's just like, I don't know, I think we're like seeing a lot of creative strategies for tunneling traffic, but the bottleneck is still how do I send data anonymously on a network that I don't control? That's the bottleneck. And there's not really a great uh, solution for that yet, unless you eclipse the network. And that's always something that I've sort of tinkered with. But when I say eclipse the network, I mean, let's say you like do get domain admin and you made too much noise and you're about to get kicked off. What do you do? You deploy something across every single machine that establishes a peer-to-peer -peer network that tries to be self-healing. And as a result, like this is the same sort of example of, let's say I'm dealing with a client who uh, catches my DNS beacon every single time, but it takes them a day to do it because of their analysis framework. What am I going to do? I'm just going to register a new domain every day and just keep rotating. So, so long as I can maintain that access, me personally, I don't care, right? It, depend it depends on your operating model, but typically speaking, like with the way that cryptography is going, we sort of have the holy grail of we can establish a secure connection in a way that is indistinguishable from random if we know we're speaking that protocol. But if someone in the middle also knows I'm speaking that protocol, like knows for a fact, they can still catch it. So uh, all of that to say, it's not quite the wild, wild west, but you are seeing some really creative things that are doing some very strange things. Like if you've ever heard of Turla, which is a very sophisticated Russian botnet, they were receiving commands, they were sending and receiving commands by commenting on Taylor Swift's Instagram or Britney Spears, one of the two, um, you, you can do that, right? Like one of the like funnier ones you can do is, and I've like tried this before, I have tunneled traffic through Pornhub. You can do that. And someone in the SOC sees that and they're not gonna be like, I'm gonna punish this guy for like doing this on office time. They're gonna be like, I'm not touching that with a 30 foot pole. Like, like there's a lot of like psychology behind this. There's a lot of like knowing what your client is like, um, the longer you can stay on a network and the longer you can figure out like how they operate as an organization, the better you can get at this. So it's really like something that has like, you know, increasing returns until you like know what their network looks like. 
And the hard part is always, now that I have my beachhead, how do I get off? So the punchline to this talk is I'm writing a tool right now that basically does some like basic cryptographic like enumeration where you hash a bunch of programs in the program folder and look to see if one of them is Teams, or look to see if one of them is Chrome, and make a decision based on that which one to egress with. And you can basically cryptographically lock the functionality where if that hash doesn't exist, you can't decrypt the payload to actually speak it. So. That's sweet. Thank you. That was a great answer. Thanks. Any other questions? <coughs> this really reminds me of communication complexity, which was one of my favorite topics when I took complexity theory. And um, I, I would encourage people who aren't familiar with that phrase to uh, look it up because there's a lot of interesting stuff. And I mean, the, the short version is just like, what is the least amount of bits you have to exchange to solve a problem with a certain number of parties, right? Yeah. Um, and you're kind of getting at that, except you have to hide the bits and like emojis that are commented below the Taylor Swift post or something. Um, mm -hmm. uh, the other thought that comes to mind when you mentioned the random protocols is um, I've spoken to this guy at uh, Lincoln Labs who used to be a grad student in my group. He graduated right before I joined, who told me that in the wild on IoT devices, they find a lot of um, ad hoc implementations of TCP that yep. are just like complete shit because they're trying to squeeze TCP onto some tiny little chip and they can't use like the Linux kernel version. And I wonder if there are maybe some interesting things you could do with um, essentially exploiting the fact that sysadmins can expect a certain number of really terrible implementations of protocols to exist on the network. And then you kind of make traffic that looks like bad TCP traffic, right? So you, you don't exactly follow the correct FSM you kind of perturb it a bit and that perturbation encodes your message, something like that. Yeah. So one of the things that we saw, I think they're called Nobellum or whatever it is, but they were tunneling traffic in TLS handshakes, um, or maybe it was TLS heartbeats. I forget, or I guess not TLS heartbeats, SSL heartbeats. I don't know if TLS supports that. Um, but there are ways of going through and like tunneling data in like either corrupting packets or dropping packets, or um, that's sort of in the space of signaling. Yeah. But with IoT, it's more interesting because a lot of the time you'll find like shitty devices on a network that even like an idiot like me can exploit, where you like somehow find your way on this router and you're like, what on earth is this thing doing? And then you like copy a couple binaries off and stick it in an emulation environment and you're like, this thing is shit. Uh, and if you can like get enough of those routers or enough IoT devices, you can sort of like stay on there forever, uh, especially because a lot of them are in places where they can't really be serviced. Um, and this is a great example of why hospitals are like totally screwed. Um, like at DEF CON, like the OS that gets installed on something, or I went to Biohacking Village and learned a bunch about medical device security. Uh, and one of the things that I learned is the OS that gets installed on a device needs to be FDA approved. And in order to update it, a lot of the time, you have to get a guy on a plane with a floppy disk and plug it in and update it. Uh, and this is a problem, especially when you have like a flat network like most hospitals have um, and can't update things. So this idea of having like a bunch of like really old devices that are all really exploitable, that all sort of do weird things like uh, is a pretty common situation to find yourself in, especially with IoT being like legitimately the wild, wild west, um, where it's you can buy like just about any like crappy commodity router or crappy smart light or smart whatever, spend a couple hours staring at code and probably find something. Um, and if you sort of like hoard a bunch of those somethings, 
then you can make this sort of job a lot easier because one of the ways that you can like covertly communicate is screw with the analytics. And let's say I have routers sending their NetFlow data to a centralized location. If I know what that looks like, I can surreptitiously just delete packets with magic bytes on them. And this is something that APTs have actually been doing. Like there are actual governments out there, probably ours included, that go through and use simple things that aren't necessarily cryptographically secure, um, but they're just hard to detect in general. You put a magic sequence in like a system of, like in a sequence of packets um, that could either be port knocking, that could be like weird headers or weird corruptions. And they the router sees that and rather than send it for NetFlow analysis, it's just like, nope, out the window you go. Uh, so hope that answers your question. Uh, and as for IPv6, it is a shit show. Nobody handles it well. Uh, it's got a lot of, and it's not me dunking on IPv6 as like a concept. Like we do need to solve the problem of not enough IP addresses. And it's not, you know, it would be nice if we fixed it the first time. But IPv6 rollouts right now have been a dumpster fire. Uh, and most organizations should probably disable support for that internally because it leads to a lot of problems with like, you know, let's say you're trying to stop like an SSRF issue, you can just put in, you know, weird like IPv6 things that like end up like being the same thing as the local loopback. Like you can you can do weird things um, and it's hard to do well. IPv6 is also funny because for the same reason that uh, HTTP2 is sometimes a great choice for covert C2 channels because they can't detect the stupid thing. A lot of seams or like aggregators of logs and like analysis frameworks just don't deal with IPv6. But whenever you use a channel like that, you're always risking the whole, okay, do they just not know how to deal with this or am I going to give myself away? Cool. Well, Kai, we should probably call it. Yeah. Um, but thank you so much for your time. This was a fascinating talk. Uh, yeah. and, and I think I'm going to insist that all future talks need to have the SpongeBob videos in them. Uh, this is going to be a new, a new rule of the Boston Computation Club. Uh, yeah. If people want to follow your work or ask you questions or reach out to you, what should they do? Should they follow you on Twitter? Should they send you an email? Uh, what, sure. what do you recommend? Uh, Twitter's fine. I respond to Keybase pretty frequently. I'm also teaching a malware development class at BU this spring. All the talks are going to be recorded. All the talks from last uh, semesters are recorded. It's going to be better this time. Um, and my GitHub is, I think, the same as my Twitter, or it, it's KBSEC, whatever it is. Yep. Uh, and you'll find CS501, which is the malware class. Awesome. And I'll, I'll add a link to that uh, next to your name on the uh, talk on the website when I update the site. So uh, great. And then I'm going to post this online. So uh, it, as long as you're OK with that, with the, the video, great. So the video is going to be online as well as audio. And uh, uh, we can all rewatch over and over to our heart's delight. So I think, thank you very much, Kai. And looking forward to seeing you in a week when I'm back in Boston. I can't. Thanks, Kai. That was great. All right. Thanks. Adios.